Uh, we're going to try to do kind of a uh, little more accelerated pace on these last five chapters. Um, so I think what we'll do is not read everything as we go through. You can be reading this as we talk through it. We probably will stop and read some things, uh, but I think that might uh, help us a good bit. Um, and we'll see what we can do in the next hour or hour and a little bit as far as trying to give as good a summary as we can in that length of time. Does that sound reasonable? Yeah. All right. So we've had Babylon presented to us, but where we're really going is to Babylon's fall. And there's this angel in 18.1, illumined with great glory, that cries out and says that Babylon has fallen. She's become a wilderness, a place where wilderness animals dwell, because, verse 3, of her corrupting influence on the nations. And again, you see Babylon representing worldliness. You see her immorality, you see the, the riches and the wealth of her sensuality. And so, what the people of God are told in verse 4 is to get out of her. Now, we kept emphasizing the right way to deal with each one of the devil's allies. You resist the sea beast, the persecution. You have wisdom and discernment with the earth beast, the false religion, and you flee Babylon, the worldliness. That's the only way you can deal with worldliness. You've got to get away. You've got to get out of it. And furthermore, you better get away from her, because if you don't, you'll be caught up in her judgment. Because God is going to pay her back for what what she's done. She's been very arrogant. Verse 7, to the degree that she glorified herself and lived sensuously, to the same degree give her torment and mourning. For she says in her heart, I said as a queen, I'm not a widow, I'll never see mourning. He says, for this reason, in one day. You know, she says never, God says it'll just be one day and her plagues will come pestilence, mourning, famine, she'll be burned up with fire. This is an understatement. For the Lord God who judges her is strong. You know, he'll bring her down when he wants to bring her down, her arrogance notwithstanding. So, she is going to fall. That's what he says in 1 through 8. Comments? You see reactions to her fall. You see the reactions of the kings of the earth in verse 9. And how are they reacting in verse 9? Weeping and lamenting. They really loved Babylon, didn't they? Where were they? Standing at 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 a distance... Why were they standing at a distance? They don't want to suffer the same thing. Yes. You know what I think? They didn't love her at all. They just liked what they got out of her. But when it comes to her being punished, they stay way away from her, weeping and mourning. That's the way worldly friendships are. They'll, you know, there's a whole lot of love until there's trouble. <laughs> and then they're, they're way far away. So they're weeping because they see their loss. And in one hour, this great city goes to ashes. Wow. That's a a powerful, powerful image. Um, And then the merchants of the earth. Verse 11, what are they doing? And why are they weeping and mourning? Yeah, they lost their meal ticket. They lost their market and their profits. Nobody buys their cargoes anymore. This is an amazing section. Verse 12, cargoes of gold, silver, precious stones, pearls, fine linen, purple, silk, scarlet, citron wood, ivory, costly wood, bronze, iron, marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, perfume, frankincense, wine, olive oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle, sheep, cargoes of horses and chariots and slaves and human lives. Do you see a little bit why God decided to bring Babylon down? A little too uh, much focus on uh, self-indulgent luxury. Almost reminds you of the U.S., doesn't it? (laughs) And I wonder how much of this we see in our homes. 
but God does not approve of this uh, luxurious splendor of Babylon. By the way, for whatever this is worth, um, the Egyptian roses at just one of Nero's banquets cost $100,000. And Vitellius, who was an emperor who reigned well less than a year, spent more than $20 million mostly on food. He had a thing for peacock's brains and nightingale's tongues and things like that. Interesting. But then again, you look at ourselves, and I'll tell you what. Shoot. Rather eat vegetables. <laughs> so the merchants, verse 15, who became rich from her, stand at a distance, weeping and mourning. You know, you, this is just emphasizing the severity of Babylon's fall. Seeing the mourning of the kings, of the merchants, and then the middle of verse 17, it's the shipping people. You know, the, the passengers and the sailors and the shipmasters. Because they make their living at sea and she was trading in all these things over the waters. And they're crying as they see the smoke of her burning. What city is like the great city? But again, they're really just worried about their prophet being gone because they're standing at a distance mourning her demise. Babylon falls. But that's not the only reaction there is. Look at verse 20. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, because God has pronounced judgment for you against her. So, while the world mourns, the faithful rejoice. Remember what Babylon was drunk on? The blood of the saints. So her demise is a real blessing to them. Then a strong angel, third one in the book, 1821, a strong angel, he needed to be, took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will not be found any longer. And the sound of harpists and musicians and flute players and trumpeters will not be heard in you any longer. And no craftsman of any craft will be found in you any longer. And the sound of a mill will not be heard in you any longer. And the light of a lamp will not shine in you any longer. And the voice of the bridegroom and the bride will not be heard in you any longer. You see that kind of uh, mournful cadence. Remind you of anything in American literature? It always reminds Yeah, it always reminds you, quote the raven, nevermore. You know, it's just kind of that mournful, everything's silent. Everything goes black. You don't hear anything. You don't see anything. The lights go out for her. Why? Middle of verse 23. The pride. The corrupting influence on the nations. And verse 24. And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all who have been slain on the earth. Remember, he kept saying, will not be found any longer. He says that two or three times because of what they did find in her. They found the blood of the Christians. So God is avenging the blood of the martyrs, fifth seal. In fact, look at ninth, chapter 19. After these things, I heard something like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God because he, His judgments are true and righteous for He has judged the great harlot who is corrupting the earth with her immorality and... He has judged, he has avenged the blood of his bondservants on her. That's exactly what they ask him to do. He's doing exactly what the martyrs in the, under the altar cried out for him to do. He's avenging their blood. And a second time they said, this is uh, one of the more striking verses in the Bible, 19.3, and a second time they said, Hallelujah, her smoke rises up forever and ever. You know, should we rejoice? At the fall of Babylon. Amen. We should. You know, that's the thing we have a hard time saying. The smoke of the incense and the prayers that gone up, leading to the smoke of Babylon going up forever and ever. No Nero started this fire, and no mere human would extinguish it. She was going up in smoke. Uh, so it's just a really powerful image. By the way, total unimportant aside, but... The only place in the New Testament, hallelujah, is used is right here in this context. Praise Jehovah. 
uh, and he ought to be praised because of his great judgments against the wicked. This will he shows you a manifestation of his great rule and dominion. End of verse 6. Hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. So, Babylon falls, met by great mourning among the worldlings, and great rejoicing among the saints and the angels and all of that. Comments and questions through 19.6. Matt. I was just really struck by this. I think you can call it a dirge for Babylon verses uh, 21 to 23, that repeated phrase, no longer, no longer, no longer. And I was reminded of chapter 6, verse 9, what the souls under the altar were saying. They're saying, how long? And now God's saying, no longer, no longer, no longer. It's almost like an answer to that question that they had. Good point. As far as the symbols, it's interesting. In 19, you're back. In heaven, you've got the throne, yes, you've got yes, the elders, yes. you've got, the, you know, everybody's there again. So, he looks back. Total destruction here, rejoicing over here. Yeah, it's the rejoicing in heaven, it's the mourning on the earth. Yes. Good point. Anything else? Well, you know, in many of these uh, situations, we've seen kind of characters... Uh, seen before they're presented to us. And I think this is the case here in 19.7. We have the marriage of the Lamb, his bride, is dressed for the wedding, but we aren't really introduced to the bride until 21.9. The harlot we caught glimpses of before we were introduced to her in 17.1 also. But you certainly see the, the fall of Babylon as an opportunity for a great marriage supper of, of God's people. And he says in verse 9, and you might remember this one, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb, because this is the first supper in this chapter. And uh, John fell at the feet of the angel to worship him. Isn't that a typical thing we do? We mistake the, 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 the messenger for the originator of the message. And we're so, it's so common for us to worship and exalt the guy who delivers the message and not the author of it. We do that with preachers all the time. One of the things that I think is very true, you take most any great preacher among brethren that you listen to and you put him talking about anything else. There's not many preachers or good speakers. They just have a great message. They know the book, and they're willing to present it without distracting you with other things. It's powerful. But it's not usually because of them. Because there are not many preachers I know that really speak that well. They don't really need to. That's not really the point. But if they present the message of God, we're impressed with that message. But we, we make the mistake and we think, wow, that was great, preacher. You did a great job. Well, you had great material. Why wouldn't you? And, and I think that's where John is. He, he's trying to worship the angel. The angel wasn't the one who did all this. He's just kind of showing it to John. So the angel quickly says, don't do that. I'm a fellow servant of yours. You know, not even angels in the Bible were willing to accept worship. And I think we ought to be a lot uh, more reluctant to, you know allow people to give us undue honor. I'm fine with somebody saying you did a good job and saying thank you and forgetting about it. But I I think that, you know, so often we almost crave, you know, uh, prestige. And man, it's the Lord who deserves that. We don't deserve any of that. And then look at 1911. Now we're really to the fall of the two beasts. You know, we've seen Babylon fall. Now what about the beasts? We zero in on that. This is a cool section. I think it's probably worth uh, taking a moment to read. Would somebody read uh, chapter 19, verses 11 to 16? And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat upon it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. And his eyes are a flame of fire, and upon his head are many diadems. And he has a name written upon him, 
which no one knows except himself. And he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may smite the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's pretty impressive, don't you think? There's Jesus as he is. We saw that picture back in chapter 1. There's a little different description, but it also is quite impressive. As heaven is just opened up, and he sees this white horse and this faithful and true uh, warrior that rides out on it. And there, man, if you can just visualize that, he's, he's quite impressive. Wow. And I want you to notice just a couple of specific things here. Um, verse 13. Um, he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. I'll just tell you, you're going to get this wrong the first couple of stabs at it. But whose blood? No. No. I told you that. The enemies. The enemies. Now, Isaiah 63 is your background passage. I won't read it now, but look at Isaiah 63, the first six verses. After you read and study that, you'll agree with me. This is the blood of his enemies. He has been out on this horse before, and particularly from verse 15, he's treading the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. So, he, he is a triumphant warrior who's got experience in battle. And his name is called the Word of God. Now, where have we seen Jesus' name as the Word of God before? John 1. John 1. And what other chapter in the Bible? Who said it? 1 John 1, yes. John 1, 1 John 1, and Revelation 19. Those three books all have one thing in common, which is John wrote them. So I think that's kind of cool. The fact is, Jesus is God's expression to man. You know, he, he reveals uh, God to man. He's got his armies with him. You know, he's just, man, he's powerful. He's awesome. We just really need to, we, we can just see Jesus this way more. Man, we, we, we need more of a sense of his greatness and his military prowess. Comments and questions through verse 16. Well, look at verse 17. This is kind of cool. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in mid-heaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God. That's really nice of the Lord, don't you think, to feed the birds? (laughs) So that you may eat the flesh of kings, and the flesh of commanders, and the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves, and small and great. So, uh, what are the birds eating? Carrion. Yeah. <laughs> the wicked ones. Uh, you notice uh, the beasts and the kings and their armies, verse 19, assembled to make war. We're back to chapter 16 again. And what happens? The beast and the false prophet were seized and thrown into the lake of fire, verse 20, and the rest were killed with the sword that came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. So, the armies of the beast and the false prophet became the supper for the birds. So you've got two suppers in this passage. If you miss the first one, the supper of the lamb... The Lord will feed you as the main course in the second one. So you have the uh, option to be the eater or the eaten. And uh, you might even make the connection with the birds with 18.2, where Babylon is going to become the dwelling place of every unclean and hateful bird. Um, Okay, so do you have questions or comments about chapter 19? i got a question. Do you see any significance... When you know Babylon is thrown down, it's the hallelujah to God. And now, when the the beasts are thrown down, it's clearly, it clearly seems to be Christ that overthrows the the beast. You think those are just basically saying the same thing? I think so. Yeah, I think so. 
Okay, chapter 20. You know, it's just a shame that we get distracted by false teachings because it just becomes hard to read a passage like this and actually see what it's saying. So let's see if we can do that. I want you to just picture this. Forget about the false teachings about it. This is a really cool passage. If you never even figured out what it meant, this is still an amazing passage. This is the dragon falling. All right. So then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And look what happens. You wouldn't expect this now. There's an angel who has the key and a chain. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Isn't that incredible? You know, that's kind of the last enemy. You know, we were presented with the dragon, the beast, and Babylon. Then we saw the fall of Babylon, the fall of beast. Now we're dealing with the dragon himself. And who deals with the dragon? Angel. It's an angel. An angel with a key and a, and a chain. You know? Isn't that amazing? Remember what Jesus said you had to do with the strong man before you plundered his goods? Bind him. Bind him. Well, here he just sent an angel down to do that job. You know, the angel grabs him, binds him with a chain, throws him into the abyss, and locks it and seals it over him. You know, God's people were sealed, but it didn't have quite the same effect as uh, sealing the abyss on the, the dragon did. For a thousand years, you know, he's, he's defeated. And uh, he's, he's in the abyss. Now, before we try to explain that anymore, look at the flip side of the same coin. Verse 4. And again, try to see this picture. Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus, because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received the mark on their forehead or on their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Now, he sees what? Thrones. Who's on them? They. Yeah, the souls of the martyrs and of those who haven't had the mark of the beast, where had we seen those souls earlier in the book? So what's happened? Yeah, the change of venue there. They've been raised up from underneath the altar to sit on thrones and reign with Jesus for a thousand years. Now, he calls this the first resurrection. I think from the standpoint they're raised from underneath the altar... <laughs> to be sitting on thrones, ruling and reigning. That's the sense in which this is the first resurrection. So what you're seeing is the absolute ultimate answer to the cry of those souls of the martyrs. I mean, they're, they're no longer needed at the altar. The, 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 their blood has been avenged. The judgment against their persecutors has come, and now they are ruling and reigning victorious with Christ, and even the dragon himself is sealed up in the abyss. Now, there's some things that at least need to be noted here. Um, where do you see these thrones as being? I mean very broadly where? In heaven. Yeah, people talk about, you know, the earthly reign here. Well, this isn't an earthly reign. This is a heavenly reign. Now, how long is the reign of Christ in this text? What is a thousand years in this text? No, what, what, what is a thousand years here? How long is that's that's true, but but in in four to six, a thousand years is what? How long they reigned with him? Not necessarily how long he reigned. 
I'm assuming from earlier in the book, Jesus was already raining. I'm assuming he'll keep raining. This is their sharing with him in his reign for a thousand years in heaven. This is the victory of God's people and the defeat of Satan. He's whipped there victorious and ruling. Now, Matt, we get into 20 to 22. There's probably more question marks than answers. Um, And there's some concepts that might help us. I want to share a concept with you that has helped me. Sometimes it helps people, sometimes it doesn't. Um, But I'm thinking about, say, Satan's defeat. I think there's a threefold sense in which Satan is defeated. Satan was defeated and bound when Jesus died on the cross and was raised. And there was a great defeat of Satan in general in Christ. There's going to be an ultimate, total, absolute defeat of Satan at the end of time when he's, you know, banished from the presence of God and never more comes out. In between this general victory uh, over Satan in, in, in Christ's resurrection and the ultimate defeat of Satan at the end of time, there's this specific defeat of Satan in connection with this persecution. I think you have that in a lot of things in these chapters. You have kind of the general in Christ. You have a specific application of that in the context of Revelation. You have the ultimate at the end of time. Um... You could do that um, with uh, the, the, the victory of God's people. In a sense, they're victorious when, they're, when they come into Christ. Or, or when Christ, you know, begins his rule. But, but they, they gain a specific victory here. Then there's the ultimate victory at the end of time. Uh, in a minute, we're going to see the new heavens and the new earth. Well, the new heavens and new earth is used a lot of places in the Bible. Well, not a lot, but in significant places in the Bible. And Isaiah 65. The new heavens and the new earth just means the new order of things within the Messianic age. New heavens and new earth just means the time of Christ. It's a whole new environment for God's people. New heavens and new earth is used in 2 Peter 3. At the end of time, the new environment we have in heaven with God. But here the new heavens and the new earth is used for a specific new environment with the victory over the beast and, and, and the the uh, relief from the persecution in connection with this situation. Now, you don't have to understand any of that, uh, but I want to throw that out. You can be thinking about that if you want to. So, I say 21 to 6 shows Satan loses and the saints win and reign with Christ. Comments and questions? Eric. Well, there's a debate about that, but I think I do. I think they are the same as the rest from 1921, the ones that were on the devil's side, on the beast's side, and I think they're brought to life in verse 11, and they'll be judged and destroyed. So I think both groups come to life, the righteous to reign, and the wicked to be judged and condemned. That's what I think. Alright, in 7 through 10, you don't, uh, you know, I, I know I am saying some things in these passages that not everybody will follow me on. It doesn't really matter to me. I'll tell you what I think and what I see. 7 through 10, when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth, surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city, and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown to the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Alright. Now, this Gog and Magog idea. This is one where we need to go back to Old Testament background. I'm not going to turn there. I'm just going to explain this. In Ezekiel 38 and 39, Gog and Magog represented a 
huge allied army that was coming against the people of God who were intense. It looked like a slam dunk for Gog and Magog, but God came along and destroyed Gog and Magog. It took them seven months for the Israelites to bury all the soldiers from Gog and Magog and seven years to burn up all their weapons using them as their exclusive fuel source. So Gog and Magog was enormous, but God gave a stunning victory for his people. Gog and Magog represent the the nth degree in forces of Satan against God's people. And lo and behold, this binding of Satan didn't didn't end things. When the thousand years were completed, Satan did not break out of prison. He was released. Satan can't do anything that he's not allowed to do. But he's released, and true to form, he goes right back to work, and he gathers up the, the Gog and Magog with the huge army fighting against the people of God in a plane, in a camp. Looked like they'd be not even on a walled city. But fire comes down into heaven and, and devours them. So I think this is saying, this is where it might be controversial. This is, I think the point of this is, when we see Satan bound, we are not seeing the end of Satan. We are just seeing the defeat of Satan. He lost that battle. Satan keeps coming back. I really think Gog and Magog is not just saying there's going to be one more time. I think Satan keeps being released. And he keeps doing the same thing all over again. But let's say one day he gets the worst possible army you could ever have. The most mythically you know, massive army you could find. God still defeats him. And ultimately, Satan will be thrown in the lake of fire. So I think that you have a massive defeat of Satan, but you have the idea that Satan will keep being released and will keep doing the same thing. But even if he does it at the nth degree, God wins. Satan is a final loser, as well as a loser in the battle in the book of Revelation. Comments and questions through verse 10. Yes. Uh, I agree with that. And I think, you know, the, the, the thousand years is more, it, it indicates the, the quality of the victory, exactly. not the time of the victory. Exactly. And, you know, if this represents the ending of the persecution that they were under, some people that may be young at this time, they may, you know, that persecution totally ends. They're going to live. Another one may arise, and unless this passage were in, they may think, well, "Now wait yes. a second, God, you you said it was over with," it, and that would cause them problems. But I, I think this is in to say, you know, this one will end, but that doesn't mean that they're always going to. There's going to be some others. Exactly. Yeah. That's exactly my view. Always good to have somebody who agrees with you. <laughs> All right. Um, and then you've got this scene in 11 to 15. I'm a little less uh, firm about my understanding of this, but I'll tell you what I think we're looking at. We're looking, obviously, at a judgment scene. And some people see this as the final judgment. That's probably the more common view. I think this is more likely to be the judgment of those who worship the beast. I don't see the righteous in this judgment. I see this more as a parallel to Daniel 7's judgment. And so I see you've got two sides. You've got the, the people underneath the altar, they're victorious in 4 to 6. You've got the other side, they're raised up to be condemned and defeated in 11 to 15. If this is the final judgment, it's okay with me. It's not going to change a whole lot. I believe there'll be a final judgment. I just see this as more of the specific judgment of the beast worshippers. Uh, the ones that didn't come to life until a thousand years was completed, now they're brought back to life to be judged and condemned and thrown into the lake of fire. To me, you kind of got two choices. You either go to the lake of fire or the city of God. 
These guys go to the lake of fire. So you can you can do with that what you want to. Like I say, more commonly people take this as the uh, final judgment, and that may be the case. Uh, but I don't see the righteous in here. I just see the wicked. So comments and questions through chapter twenty. You gonna let me buy with all that? Good. All right, chapter 21 is quite a change of pace. A lot lot better. (laughs) Because really we're now seeing God's people victorious. And it's really, wow, so different. New heaven, new earth. You know, whole new environment. First heaven, the first earth, they're gone. And now we've got, you know, uh, the holy city, New Jerusalem, like a bride coming out of heaven. God dwelling among men, every tear being wiped away, no death, no mourning, no crying, no pain, everything new. Uh, this is this is a picture of those who overcome. They've overcome the persecution of the beast, and they're victorious. And many of the passages that make promises to the overcomers are fulfilled here in chapter 21 and 22. If they stick it out, you know, then they, they they gain this victory, and they're rejoicing, and they are uh, they are blessed by God. Um, so I see this as just as a picture of the victory of God's people. We've been picturing the defeat of the devil and his allies. Well, what's going on with the people of God? Well, it's wonderful for them. They're victorious. They are. Uh, they are uh, at peace. They have God's presence with them. Now, you have to be careful about that. This is not a blanket promise for everybody. And again, we said that it's possible to be in one of these churches and still be excluded. Look for at verse 8. You know, you've got the categories of people that will not join in the victory and the celebration of those who stick it out and remain faithful to God. So it's important that they have the courage to confront the beasts, and and that they be faithful and righteous before God, to get to enjoy this picture. Comments and questions to verse 8. I want to do something here now, that I think is very uh, important. Um, and just uh, a big part of the book. I want you to look at 21.9. But uh, And I'm going to read you something, but I'm not reading you 21.9, but you look at 21.9. Here's what I'm going to read. Then one of the seven angels, who had the seven bulls, came and spoke with me, saying, Come here. I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. Did you see how parallel that was? The same introduction is given to showing the harlot as to showing the bride. Now I want you to look at 21.10. But I'm not going to read you 21.10, but you look at 21.10. I'm going to read you, And he carried me away... In the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast. I'm reading you 17.3, but it's presented. What I'm showing you is that the way these are introduced, God's woman is presented in a parallel way to the devil's woman. And I think there is so much in the comparison and contrast between God's woman and the devil's woman. The devil's woman, Babylon, she went down the tubes and she silenced. She was destroyed in one hour. God's woman, New Jerusalem, is victorious and blessed by God. I do believe that we ought to see New Jerusalem, this bride, as God's people more than we see it as a place. And I believe this is God's people victorious after the bowls of wrath have been poured out. It's one of the seven bowl angels that shows this picture. So I believe that the fall of Babylon and this picture of the victory of New Jerusalem occur at the same time. So I don't take this as being heaven. 
you can take it that way if you want. You won't make me mad or anything like that. But I take this as the victorious state of God's people after the fall of the beast in the first century. And, and that this is really a splendid picture of God's people. Now, I might notice one thing to defend that. I won't try to defend it a whole lot. But in uh, verse 14, the foundation stones are the twelve apostles. And certainly the foundation of the church, Ephesians 2.20, are the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone. Now, the, the main thing I want to emphasize, and I'm just going to do this with a few things, is there are so many impressive comparisons and contrasts between God's woman-slash-city and Satan's woman-slash-city. For example, they both have children. 12-17, One's a bride, uh, a virgin. The other one's a harlot. You had those same introductions in 17, 1 to 3 as you do in 21, 9 and 10. The harlot was seated on many waters. The bride was coming out of heaven. They both, though, were seen in a wilderness. God's woman was seen in a wilderness back in chapter 12. And uh, the devil's harlot was seen in a wilderness in 17, 3. Their clothing is described. For example, 12, 1 and 17, 4. We've already looked at that. They were both mothers. Uh, you remember that. Um, they both had their uh, name on their forehead. In 17.5, remember that mother of harlot's name? 22.4, God's name is on the forehead of the people in New Jerusalem. Um, there's so many things. There's a blessing for entering God's city. There's an exhortation to flee the devil's city. Uh, the Babylon glorifies herself, 18.7. But it's the glory of God that exalts uh, his people. Like 21.11, she has the glory of God. Um, and then, one of the more impressive things. The presentation of Babylon. Starting in 17.1, ends in 19.10 with John trying to worship the angel. The presentation of New Jerusalem ends in 22.8 with John trying to worship the angel. So these sections begin and end in parallel fashion. I think we're really intended to see you've got the devil's woman city versus God's woman city. And that's a big sub-theme of the book. I could do a lot more with that, but that's probably confusing enough. It's just hard to do all that in short term. You really have to start looking for those things and kind of seeing some of them for yourself and realizing that's just part of what God's showing. Now, the thing of it is, here's the lesson in this. Babylon looked victorious. Babylon was drunk on the blood of the saints. She was living it up. She had all the luxury and the splendor. She had the kings eaten out of her hand. She was doing great. God's woman was persecuted in the wilderness. The dragon was chasing her. You know, the sea beast was persecuting her. The earth beast was trying to deceive her. You know, the woman was drunk on her blood. She, she, was, she was in terrible shape. But what's the end of the picture? Babylon's destroyed in one hour. She's a goner. You don't hear a noise from her anymore. And God's woman city, oh wow, this is amazing. This is awesome. She's in the presence of God. She has the glory of God. She is victorious. We've got to get out of the habit of looking at how things are right now and seeing how they're going to be. And in the long run, the devil's woman is defeated and destroyed. And God's woman is illuminated by his very glory. That's the point, I think, of all this. Do you have comments and questions? Just one comment. I think it's interesting, you know, starting in verse 11, you've got the throne of God again. You've got the judgment, which, remember, we started there with with the throne of God. And I mentioned before, 
back there there was this sea that seemed to in some sense separate John from yes. from the the majesty of God. Now that's gone in, in verse one of twenty one. We're there. The people are there. There is no separation anymore. God's people and God in some sense have almost merged and become one. That you know, we had the, the, the scene of the throne room and all this stuff going on on earth. They've come together here, in a sense, I think, the, the images at the end of the, the book here. Excellent. Very good. Other thoughts? Rick? It's sort of an underlying theme in the Bible in general, but it's something you really see here. Um, when it comes to worldly living, there's a lot of flash, a lot of outward appearance, but there's no substance to it. It's basically a hollow shell. Um, all the instructions we're given in the Bible in general are to strengthen ourselves from the inside, to strengthen our hearts, to strengthen our minds. It's not about strength looking pretty, it's not about being a bad about being mighty, it's about strengthening the inner person to be able to weather the storms. Very good. some extent in these last couple chapters I think what I'm seeking to do as much as anything is sort of give you some things to be looking for and some things to be seeing. So I think as you look at chapter 21 you're really seeing the blessings of God's people who stuck it out and who didn't give in. And it's a beautiful picture and it's encouraging. And um, there's a couple of other things that I think we ought to be looking for. Let me suggest three things to kind of... One of them I've mentioned a couple times. But let me suggest three things that you can start looking for in chapters 21 and 22. One is the promises to the overcomers being fulfilled from chapter 2 and 3. Another is particularly, not exclusively, but particularly in the first five verses of chapter 22, Garden of Eden imagery. You've got a bunch of that. And the idea of the Garden of Eden, of course, is the idea of the fellowship with God before sin marred that. And, and, and so you've got the idea recurring here of the fellowship with God as, as God's people are faithful to Him. And kind of the idea of what was lost in the fall is regained and restored. There's really quite a bit of Garden of Eden stuff. And you can even (coughs) see a little bit of it a little bit outside of this. For example, the use of the serpent for the devil and so forth. There there are several things that even outside of these particular chapters that kind of lead you to this conclusion. Now, Garden of Eden imagery is used some of the prophets for just the idea of what we get in Christ. We do get the reversal of the effects of the fall and the reconciliation with God and the restoration of being with God. But I think this is even intensified as they gain the victory with the Lord. They are brought even into a closer fellowship with God. Here's another thing you can be looking for. And this is particularly true in chapter 22. The notes of the introduction, particularly chapter 1, verses 1 to 11, are resounded in the conclusion. This is a perfect, you know, musical piece. You know, when you kind of tie things up in a nice, tidy thing. You just start going through the introduction and the conclusion. You'll find tons of tie-ins. He kind of ends up saying the same things he started with and kind of bringing us back to where we've been. I want to notice a few specific things in chapter 22 with you um, that I think may be helpful. Um, you have the emphasis in verse 6 of chapter 22 on Christ being faithful and true. What he's saying is the truth. You certainly have the emphasis, as we said before, on the time of the fulfillment in 6 and 10. You've got the emphasis on, I'm coming quickly. Jesus is about to come and do these things. You've got that in 7, 12, uh, 17, and 20. Um, You've got... Uh, uh, in 7, blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. You better pay attention and, and obey this book. You've got John trying to worship the angel again. And, you know, he shouldn't do that. 
but do we tend to do the same thing only worse, worshiping men? Um, you've got kind of in verse 11, everybody chooses their own fate. Um, and you've got just a lot of the, uh, you know, you've got the two choices kind of passages. Verse 14, blessed. Verse 15, outside are. You know, which side are you going to be on? Um, you've got verse 17, which is a bit uh, challenging. The Spirit and the Bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come. I think they're saying to Jesus, come. Uh, that's That's debatable. Because he does use come in different sense than in the last half of the verse. And let the one who's thirsty come. And let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. But I think in this passage, they're probably saying to Jesus to come and fulfill these promises. And then in verse 20, he who testifies to these things says, Yes, I'm coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. But he ends this as you'd end a letter. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. You know, Paul could have written this book. You know, and so this is the letter to the seven churches. And, uh, you know, we've said a lot, and obviously in these last five chapters, we've summarized a lot, and that may be make it a little more confusing, I don't know. But I think that it would be very profitable for you guys to go back Reread Revelation a few times. You know, if you could reread it in the next week or ten days once, that'd be really helpful. And then reread it a few times over the next two or three months. You know, I think it will put this, it, it, it'll fix it in your mind. I think you'll see more. And I think the more you read it and get familiar with it, the more this stuff makes sense. You know, it's, uh, it's, it's easier to teach Revelation to people who know the book really well, at least in terms of the facts. And so the more you can know it, I think the better you'll get you'll you'll get a handle on it. But definitely don't get bogged down with something you don't understand. Try to see the overall picture. Try to see the, the thing that has impact for us. I mean this is a book that tells us no matter what we have to go through, we've got to stay faithful to the Lord and we'll win the victory. And that's certainly the bottom line that we need to get out of this. So you know, I'll, I'll open it up for questions and comments. And What do you want to say about Revelation? Scott. I, I like your comment about the imagery of the Garden of Eden. Because it, if you go back, you know, Genesis, the first chapter of the first book of the Bible, talks about Eden. Well, what do you know about Eden? Well, rivers flowed from it, so it was on a hill. It says there's gold there. There's jewels there. God was with his people. The tree of life was there. Now you're in the last chapter, the last book. God's people are golden. There's jewels. God is with them. The tree of life is there. Uh, It just wraps the Bible all up in one complete circle. Yes. Brings God's people back to where they first started. And where they first started, they sinned and they lost that. What's his exhortation, you know, right here at the the end, you know, anyone takes away the words of the book, you're going to be where you started again. You know, he brought us back to where we started. Stay there. Don't fall away again. Amen. Good comment. I have a question Jason. on verses 18 and 19. Seems like, would you say that this warning is to those Christians in the seven churches that would actually be listening to this book being read? Yes. Mainly? Well, yeah, or anybody else who'd do it, mm-hmm. but yes. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, uh, I mean, I'm not sure. It's certainly to them, but but we shouldn't do that either. Sometimes we use that as kind of a blanket teaching for the Bible. It specifically applies to Revelation. It does. Um, but it does set a general truth that... Same principle is true with all the gods' will. We shouldn't be expansionate. Right, right. I think the book he's talking about is, is this book of Revelation, but it certainly is the right principle for any of God's revelation. Gives us great motivation not to, though. <laughs> Good point. Other comments? So, Gary, in either chapter 21 or 22, you'd see as the depiction of heaven, per se. I don't. The state of God's people. Victor- Victor- no, victorious on the earth after the fall of the beast and the false prophet. 
I think it's I think it's a figurative picture of the victory of the church in the first century. I don't I'm not inclined to argue strenuously with somebody who sees it as heaven because obviously you've got that idea of what we have in Christ in general or in Revelation specifically is true in the ultimate sense in heaven. So there's a lot of parallels. But virtually every statement in chapter 21 is paralleled in the prophets talking about the the messianic era in general. So there's almost nothing he says in chapter 21 that you can't say is true of Christians now. I think it's especially true after they won this victory, and it's ultimately true in heaven. So, that's the way I see it. You know, I don't, like say, I don't have a problem, particularly with somebody who sees it differently. That's just what I think he's saying. Yeah. (laughs) That's the way I see it. And certainly I agree with that. Mostly because, not because you said it, (laughs) but uh, chapter 21, verse 9 says, Come, I'll show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And then he describes this city. Now, I think we all know who the bride, the wife of the Lamb is. And so, in the description, if that's the bride, the wife of the Lamb, shouldn't that be us? And, of course, what's God interested in? He's interested in the hearts of men. Um... That's what's gold to him. That's what's jewels. Not heaven, you know. <laughs> he lives. That's where he lives. But we're what's valuable. We're what's golden. Well, and the great thing about heaven will be not the uh, physical place, but the being with God. Matt. Uh, going, kind of going back to what Jason was saying, verses 18 and 19. Uh, talking about everyone who hears the words of this prophecy don't add to them, don't take away. That that kind of language is in some of the discussion of the covenant in Deuteronomy, especially chapter 4. Yes, it is. Discussion of the covenant, which would kind of tend to make me think this is to the churches, as Jason was asking, you know, saying, you have a covenant with God, you need to persevere, you need to stick it out, you need to keep the covenant. Because there is, just as the covenant, Israel had the covenant, there were blessings and cursings associated with keeping that covenant in the same way. These Christians who choose not to persevere, who choose to follow the harlot, follow the beast, um, the same thing's going to happen to them. The, the, the curses will be, you know, they'll be subject to those curses. Good point. I'll buy that. Other thoughts? Dave, question. Uh, chapter 21, verse 22. says, But I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. Yeah. God, God is is present with his people in this victory. So they're kind of carrying out this symbolism of the temple was how God dealt with people. Yes. So when you're there with him, you don't need a temple because he's there with you. Or when he's here with us, we don't need a temple because he is present with us. We, we are his temple. Um, you've got several, uh, I was just looking at my notes uh you know, several Old Testament passages that talk about in Christ, God will be their only light. And they won't need a physical temple. Uh, look at Isaiah 60, for example. Uh, the thing, you know, one of the things that is the, you know, as we say, an important thing for studying Revelation is just trying to study as much as we can the prophets. Because it really does help us a good bit. Um, look at Isaiah 60. Um, Verse um, 19. Uh, No longer will you have the sun for light by day, nor for brightness will the moon give you light. You will have the Lord for an everlasting light and your God for your glory. Your sun will no longer set, nor nor will your moon wane. You will have the Lord for an everlasting light. The days of your mourning will be over. I I believe that's a messianic prophecy. You can look at chapter 60, verses 1 through 3. I think we see that as messianic. You can go right down three verses later, chapter 61, verse 1, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, and so forth. That was quoted in Luke 4, and Jesus says, This day the Scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So I think chapter 60, verses 19 and 20, is messianic. And in one sense, we don't have the Son anymore. We've got the Lord with us. In general, in Christ, and in a special way as they gained the victory in the first century. 
some some of these some of the language in twenty one and twenty two if we're not familiar with you know Isaiah and Ezekiel and some of those things it sounds like that's got to be heaven but it's the very language he uses over and over in the prophets to describe what we have in Christ now. Anything else you want to say? Thank you. Well, thank you guys. It's been really cool, really encouraging, and uh, and I appreciate your uh, bearing with all this, and uh, just really encouraging to study together. You know, I appreciate what you guys do in general with doing this, having weekends every month where you'll do intensive studies of various sorts. I think it's tremendous, you know, and uh, you're a good example. You know, I can uh, use you even in Brazil to encourage some of the brethren there that there are some people like them in the U.S. as well that uh, are eager to study. And, uh, you know, I'm glad to tell them stories like this. It's always encouraging to them. And, uh, you know, I pray for you guys and, uh, you know, really appreciate it. What you've done, and uh, I'm so glad that uh, my kids get to be a part of the group here. That's uh, really good for them. So we're glad to be able to share the weekend.